That was the J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut, a movie podcast for movie nerds. What's up? It's Andreas. I run Films Fatale, and um, we got a really cool episode coming up. I'm a master's graduate student, and with me I've got my fellow classmate. Uh, How's it going, Rachel? It's going pretty well. I have the same degree as Andreas, and I have worked with film in Canada and Europe. I just launched a new world cinema column with the aforementioned Films Fatale, and I'm really looking forward to it. How about number three? Are you there? Yep. James here. I did not go to school for anything film related, nor did I go to school with my two co-hosts. I do fun things in relation to audio and music. I release and produce music under the alias Boutique Paul, and I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. Fantastic. Well, I'm so glad to be joined by both of you. Uh, It does feel like a a brand new world after uh, January 20th. Let's just leave it at that. But um, I'm glad to still have the pod with both of you. And we're going to be talking all things film once again. But that also pertains to things that aren't just movies themselves. So the cinematic experience, whether you're watching it at home or in a theater, I think the K-Cut can devote itself to all of these types of experiences. So I posed the question this week for both my lovely co-hosts. What is one of the weirder cinematic experiences you've had in a movie theater or a festival so when you went to go see something what was something that just made it stick out like did anything absurd happen was it just peculiar in some other way i asked both co-hosts and myself of course to avoid positive so like if you met a director or a famous movie star particularly something that's just more strange where it's like i'm not going to forget when i saw that movie so rachel let's start off with you what was your unique let's say movie going experience sure well to start i should give some context nitrate film was the original film stock uh, in cinema and from the beginning of film till about the 50s it was pretty dominant for commercial movies the one problem is it tends to explode It is very flammable, it can even burn underwater, its fumes are toxic, and it was basically famous for accidentally causing theater fires and archive fires, which is part of why there are so many lost films. So naturally, the George Eastman House in Rochester, New York, decided that this was a great thing to use in their theater. So every year in the spring, not during COVID, but usually, George Eastman in Rochester does the nitrate picture show. And so for four days, you go to Rochester and you watch only nitrate films. So it's only very old movies, 50s and earlier. And it's beautiful. It's comparable to vinyl records in that the quality is much sharper. It's much better. And it's so dangerous to screen that only two or three theaters in the United States are allowed to screen it, or that at least they were in 2016. I don't think anywhere in Canada could, maybe a couple in Europe. When you get there, they give a long announcement about safety. They give you very strict instructions like stand up wind when you go outside because the fumes are so toxic if there's a fire. And we actually went on a tour of the screening booth and there were all kinds of security measures. There was special apparatuses in case of a fire and you could tell that it was really serious business. But that's not the screening I want to talk about. So at the end of the festival, every year they do what's called a blind date with nitrate. And so they don't tell you what the movie is. I think they leave an obscure hint, like a still from the movie or something. And then they show you a special treat. In this case, it was Ramona. Have either of you heard of Ramona? I have not. I have because uh, now I remember this story. I remember you telling me this. And you said I would remember this. 
Yeah. So this was from 1928. It was an American film about a young woman who was part, I believe, indigenous Mexican and then part European. So it's a love story. It's got all the tropey silent movie stuff. And this was a German print. It was meant for the German market. So it had German intertitles. And this particular print was sent to Germany in the 20s. And then at the end of the war, the Soviets actually took it as a cultural treasure. And it went to the Soviet Union and stayed there in a vault for many years. Meanwhile, the film was believed to be lost. Everyone thought it did not exist. And then only a couple of years before this screening, it was discovered in Moscow in what had once been the Soviet vault. So after many, many negotiations, Rochester got this screening only a few days before it was scheduled to take place. They were prepared to show something else and they had no idea it was going to come over. So Roughly 90 years of history and multiple countries came together for that one screening to happen in Rochester, New York, and it was phenomenal. I've always wanted to see something on nitrate, especially because we did the same program. And unfortunately, I don't want to say health issues as if it sounds serious. I have a lot of sleep-related issues, and it was affecting me greatly while we were studying. So I didn't partake in any of the Rochester trips that we all went on. So unfortunately, I missed out on some really cool stuff like this. If you could describe nitrate, because I know it is, as you said, like the vinyl collecting of cinema where there's nothing like it. What was it like to look at a nitrate print? Like what sets it apart? I want to say shiny. The colors are brighter. The image is sharper. You can see the action more clearly. Even looking at the film stock itself, it's very beautiful and it stands out. So the most fun I had were with the animated ones and with the brightly colored Technicolor musicals because it really showed off the colors. That would be amazing, Technicolor Nitrate. Mm -hmm. Technically, the only person right now, because of the closed border, who can watch Nitrate is you, James, because it's all a lot to come up here in Canada. So, uh, Gotta take one for the team, James. Yeah, you have to. Oh, I might have to. Except they're all cancelled. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's too bad. Actually, hearing you talk about it, it sounds like Nitrate is more akin to if you were to listen to the original Master Analog Reel for music. Right, that's true. Yeah, fair enough, actually. Uh, well, obviously, James, uh, our our sound technician here, uh, that that is an apt um, analogy that you made. Yeah, I actually had a recording teacher. He said that he had once experienced a made for studio master tape, and he said it was the best thing he had ever heard. And he had not heard any recorded music sound like that ever in his life. The other thing about nitrate is the sense of danger involved. Yes, You're like, there's just the slightest chance there's going to be something off and i mean you obviously don't want that to happen but it does lend a unique quality to the screening for any of our dear listeners familiar with quentin tarantino's and glorious bastards that's the film stock that they use i was just about to bring this up yes that's that's exactly the film stock that they use it lights up and can kill you in seconds cinema paradiso i think also had a nitrate fire Oh, yeah, because it's the one that, uh, well, I don't want to spoil the movie because it's so beautiful, but, you know, the titular cinema paradiso, et cetera, et cetera. It is. It's also nitrate in that, I think. I would love to see nitrate one day. I'm glad that you were able to relay that story with us because, first off, it's interesting, like that particular that particular film and the extra qualities that have, but secondly, nitrate, is that the only nitrate film you've seen outside of, like you said, there were other like Technicolor examples and stuff as well that you've seen? Yeah, so at the festival, they show about a dozen films in total, including shorts and uh, the whole range is as diverse as they can make it. And so you can really get a mix. 
sadly, the following year, they showed my favorite movie of all time, and I'm still bitter. Oh, man. The Holiday? Holiday. Oh, on Nitro. That's too bad. Was that the surprise one, or was it something that was publicly cataloged? No, the thing is, they don't share the program until the first day of the festival, so you don't know what you're getting until you go in, and you don't know the last screening until the final day. So it's a very tense surprise, but you do miss out if there's a particular film you want to see. Oh, wow, because I knew... I've heard many stories from colleagues that the final film is a surprise, but I didn't know that the entire program was hidden. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's an entire wild card (laughs) situation. Yeah. And there's usually a treasure too. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that story with us. It sounds a lot more optimistic than mine. I guess first off, this is back in 2013. So if you're not a Toronto resident, I'll have to explain. The Carlton Cinema is one of those local cinemas. It's not necessarily like a one-off family-run type deal, especially now that it's owned by uh, Rainbow, I believe it's called. Mm -hmm. But they do specialize in student films, smaller indie films. They do like big stuff as well, like blockbusters, you know, to get by. They do a lot of special screenings. Uh, They show Tommy Wiseau's The Room every month. Heck yeah. They specialize in small things. Yeah, and it has like... Some of the theaters are so tiny, they seat like 20 people. It's really intimate. So this was, believe it or not, my first time that I had ever been to the Carlton, which is sad. But hey, better late than never. So back in 2013. Okay, let's have a look at the cinema. Uh, We're going to watch Blue is the Warmest Color, which if you haven't seen that film, is three hours long, excessively graphic, quite challenging in terms of its drama and its type of realism. So outside of the male gaze, of course, but it's a challenging film and you kind of want to sink into it and you kind of want to have all of your attention. So my first exposure was, you know, I need to go to the bathroom. So I I go to the men's room and I see this gentleman left to go into the same theater. And there's like all of these bottles of Jack Daniels and stuff. And I was like, could that have been him? No, I don't think that could have been him. I think we're okay. I've just never seen this before, not in a movie theater, but I think we're okay. So my friend and I, we go in and the trailers start naturally. There's such and such movie coming out. Bigger Splash, I think was there was a trailer for, you know, like art house stuff, European stuff. So it's like, okay, this is fine. Not a peep. There's like three other people in the theater, including this guy. Not a peep. Another trailer. Not a peep. Go by concessions. Not a peep. Then the actual film starts. The producers or the studios get announced. I think it's Wild Bunch. It's something else. Not a peep. As soon as the actual picture starts and you start to see Adele Exarchopoulos acting, this freaking guy gets up and starts talking to us about if we're interested in leaving to go chase moon rocks. (laughs) And what? (laughs) We we need... (laughs) (laughs) We need to harvest moon rocks because they are essential to life or some crap. Like he stood up and starts facing us and we're like, what, what in the hell? So now at this point, I'm like, okay, those probably were his, his bottles of alcohol. He's probably drunk. A lot of us are trying to get him to leave. And it's like, please shut up. Like we're trying to watch right now. And he wouldn't stop. Like, like he was like flat at ignoring us as if he couldn't hear us. Like, you know, the moon rocks are, are so vital to, you know, the life essence and this, and he just wouldn't stop talking. I can't even remember what he was talking about, but it was specifically moon rocks. And we need to to leave the stratosphere. And eventually uh, security comes, I think, and he's like, you know, can you please stop talking? And, you know, he leaves. Now I'm like all bothered. It's like, oh my God, I like, I'm, I don't even know what's happening. I'm not even interested. This went on for like three minutes. I was like, 
I'm so detached from this film. I'm about about to see for like three hours. Eventually I got into it, really liked the film, had to see it again for obvious reasons because I was just so removed. The film wraps up and my friend's like, so what did you think? You know, she had seen it before. She wanted to know my take. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm just so glad that censored idiot left because he just ruined the first hour for me. I couldn't get into it because I was just so bothered. Right. But I'm glad he left. And I said this out loud. Now, you guys probably know I'm very reserved. Lo and behold, the guy didn't leave. He was right behind me. And he was of so course. <laughs> How would I have That's known? Great. And apparently, like, one of the other patrons was talking to me. I didn't notice this because I was trying so hard to focus. He, like, hopped around the seats the entire film. Like, I don't know what his deal was. But essentially, in short... My blue is the warmest color experience. The very first time I watched it and my first Carlton cinema experience was ruined by some guy who had this hidden agenda and about uh, moon rocks. <laughs> moon rocks. It was like some cultist thing. Like this stuff is essential for our lives. Usually we create a rapport and we talk about each other's selections. Do you guys have anything to add to this? Because I don't know what you could. That is wild. Well, what if he turned out to be right in the end? Yes, but if he was right, couldn't he have chosen a better time? Like, we had, like, five previews. <laughs> we had, True. like, so many previews. I just wanted to see this film. Like, it's just so... And it's already it. three hours. You man, like... Weirdo's gonna weird, man. <laughs> it's three, And it's not an easy film. I don't know if either of you have seen it. It's not an easy film. Like, it's so sexually graphic. It's so, like... It, it almost feels verite at times. It's not like the Avengers where you're automatically hooked in again. Like it's, it's when you want to think about it's when you want to like enjoy and like, just, you know, take in all of the color, all of the writing, everything. I enjoyed the film. I would like a version with a slightly shorter runtime and cut that really explicit sex scene out of it because it was completely unnecessary and I'm going to assume that the director is a total creep in real life based on that scene alone. He got a lot of criticism in that. Actually, you're right, which is sad because even after that, he had a subsequent film which was deemed unwatchable and and I think it was was it Venice or Cannes? It was deemed one of the worst films in festival history and from what I know now, both Adelix Herkopoulos and Leah Sado have gone on to say that this guy's a creep. You know, it's one of those things where you have to question, okay, this is obviously from the male gaze, but is this like a fetish or is this guy really trying his best to observe and explore? At, at the end of the day, I ended up clearly being a perversion, which is unfortunate. So the guy is a creep. I guess the guy with the moon rock seems a lot more morally correct in, in comparison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except for he talked during a movie. Oh, the ultimate blasphemous act. There are only two movies that you're allowed to talk through. That's Rocky Horror and The Room. Absolutely. That's true. Which, speaking of The Room, at the Carlton, my girlfriend and I love going to midnight screenings, but that's a topic for a different day. We could go over our best room jokes if we want. But for now, James, what is your experience? So my experience, I couldn't think of any really weird or odd experiences for myself. I'm going to talk about an experience that someone else had with a movie they saw with me that I just felt bad about. And it's when I went to see the movie Mother with my wife. Oh, Mother. Yeah. So obviously the trailer didn't give too much away. So I was like, oh, this seems really interesting. You know, I like Darren Aronofsky and I knew it was going to be something different in I, I expected something to go down and we're watching 
and one of the first things that I really appreciated, but also found weird, which I had found out beforehand, it has no score, but sound plays a big role in the movie. And as it's going along, okay, as things kind of slope up to where it gets a little bit more intense, I could tell she's getting uncomfortable because there's a suspense factor throughout the film and she doesn't enjoy suspense at all. And so there's a point, there are certain points where it's like, okay, you could tell she's uncomfortable. And then once things started getting really crazy, you know, she'll like grab my arm or grab my hand and, you know, something that might seem scary. She's, you know, she's liable to jump. I'm like, oh, great. I hope this isn't like this throughout the movie. And then that certain part of the movie happens. And I'm not going to say it on here, but if you see the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's probably one of the most extreme parts of the movie that happened. And she was not having it. It totally ruined the movie for her. And by the end of it, actually, if I remember correctly, I think some people actually walked out of the film, too. <laughs> like, I happen to notice some people I leave and not, not come back. But yeah, I just I felt so bad because this always happens where I'll show we'll go to or I'll show her a movie or we'll watch a movie and something happens to where she just absolutely hates it. Like we watched Chinatown and she hated it. She was like, oh, it was great to that ending. And this happened numerous times. It's just I, sometimes I always find it funny. But this one I just felt legitimately bad about because I didn't realize it was going to be that intense. And it's like Aronofsky on steroids, that movie. It really is. I remember during the, the press tour, even before they had the festival releases of it, some good friends of his said, no, I'm not joking. This is like the, the 21st century version of A Clockwork Orange. It's going to mess you up. And I thought that was a lot of hoopla, but no, I it really did have that effect where just a lot of people disdained it because it's just so challenging is not the right word. It's provocative and exploitational and just it's it's a lot of a lot. Oh, it most definitely is. It's really funny, though, because obviously once things get out there and the online gets going, you got a bunch of people like trying to break it down. When you go back to interviews with him talking about the movie, it's basically an environmentalist rant. Yeah, that's pretty much the basis for it. But he kind of weaves in those biblical allegories that he likes to put in a lot of his film and material. I just found that hilarious. So he's like, oh, yeah, basically, it's uh, if you mistreat Mother Earth, then bad things will happen. And as it ended up, bad things happened. Uh-huh. Also, Javier Bardem is Jesus. So, I mean. Javier Bardem is amazing. That sounds like pretty straightforward Aronofsky commentary. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> and as a filmmaker, he can be an acquired taste for a lot of people in the first place. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot of American filmmakers who are like edgy, like, you know, Fincher and whatnot. But Aronofsky certainly knows how to poke the right buttons like if you watch something like black swan if you're not disturbed by like the neck part or other things for me like there's always like one thing that he knows he puts something in the film that'll disturb everybody i'm fine with everything else it's the part where nina like rips her skin off her finger yes yes, yes. that's exactly what i was thinking of oh oh, that one yeah it's like i it's like i pick my nails that that is a fear of mine so it uh, wasn't until i I saw that movie (laughs) (laughs) okay it's like now i'm painfully aware uh which uh happy 11 years black swan i guess it's been oh wow geez yeah like you james my poor girlfriend is subjected to so many of my weird films and she's usually like very uh accommodating the one time that i basically you know pulled the ejector seat for anniversary we go into films blind so we did chicago 7 last year we've done moonlight we've done beautiful boy one year we did Florida Project and all the kids spitting and stuff. Oh, that's a hard watch. Yeah, I knew she wasn't having a fun time and she doesn't say anything because she doesn't want me to feel bad. 
because it was my choice. So I was like, I know you're not having fun. This is our anniversary. I don't mind getting a refund. I'll come back next week. And I did, and I loved it. But that's not a film you want to see on your anniversary. You both want to be happy, you know? Sometimes life's just too short to watch a movie you're not into. Oh, yeah, but she's dealt with a lot. She's dealt with Mulholland Drive. She's dealt with Persona. And this is, like, my girlfriend loves, like, 10 Things I Hate About You, Pretty in Pink. Mm -hmm. Or not Pretty in Pink. She loves, oh, yeah, no, it's Pretty in Pink. She hates 16 Candles. That's the one that she doesn't like. You know, she loves John Hughes stuff uh, otherwise. So, you know, Persona is a bit of a big bite. So if that's not true love, I don't know what is. (laughs) Right. So now it is time for our pitch of the week. And my pitch for us to do this week is not to do a pitch of the week. Instead, we're going to do something else. Rachel, what are we going to do? We are going to do quick questions. And so this is where we ask each other questions about our film tastes, our film experiences, and we get to know each other a little better. And so they should just be off the cuff, simple answers. And I guess we should get started. Who's got a question? This is completely new. None of us know what we're asking ahead of time. So yeah, James, you want to start? Sure. What's everyone's favorite film score? Just one, right? Just one. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess it's a bit of a spoiler for my top 100 scores I'm going to be doing. But at the moment, and this could change because I've got a few of my favorites, but at the moment, I'm feeling Once Upon a Time in the West by Ennio Morricone. Ennio Morricone is the GOAT. That's a pretty decent pick. That's my favorite. The harmonica, the edgy guitar, it's it's the greatest. Uh, Rachel, what about you? Mine's The Piano by Michael Nyman. Oh, that is a good one. I love that score. Yeah, it's just, I, I used to listen to it for hours at a time, just whenever I need to be studying or, and it was something so so nice to have in the background, even though that movie has a lot of disturbing stuff. Oh, uh, it, it breaks my heart because I just remember, well, I don't want to spoil the film. It's one of the greatest of the 90s. So if you haven't seen the piano, please watch the piano. I talked about Jane Campion like a week or two ago. Same thing. She's the greatest. Uh, James, what about you? Mine is Fight Club. Okay. Is that a score or a soundtrack? It actually is technically a score. The reason I like it is because it was made by the Dust Brothers. And for those who don't know who the Dust Brothers are, they're very critically acclaimed historic record producers who two of their most notable projects are producing Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys and Odelay by Beck. And they've done a litany of other things. But they did this movie and none of the music was made to any of the scenes themselves it was made aside from the movie and it was synced up later which is kind of wild because all the music goes perfectly with everything that's going on so it kind of blew my mind i was like hold on you didn't watch any any material from this movie and they just made tracks and submitted them but it also kind of goes along with david fincher's knack for picking the right composers for his stuff oh yeah you know he's the reason that atticus ross and trent reznor are doing scores brilliantly i might add that's wonderful so just the fact that he, you know, colored outside the lines and picked people who normally don't do film, I think it almost makes it for an even better score because they don't come from that world in general. Yeah. So they have to, as you said, think outside the box. Did they also do Three Feet High and Rising by Daily Soul? No, that wasn't them. That was Prince Paul. Oh, right. Duh, okay. That and Paul's Boutique came out in the same year and they both had that wild... The sample flipping. Yeah. The wild outlandish kaleidoscopic sample mashups because they both like picked a bunch of odd sources that no one was touching at the time and both of them were really groundbreaking except three feet high and rising was the more commercial one yes oh i I love me some de la soul and beastie boys uh rachel what is your question all right what is the worst movie you've ever seen because you loved a director or actor or someone creative involved with it Oh, so like the worst by the best kind of thing, right? When you say you've followed someone anywhere, this really tested you. Oh, God. I need to think about that for a second. Uh, James, do you have an answer? Or 
whatever pops into your head guys honestly i'm gonna go with the beach bum for me i'm sure there's probably other ones but this one just let me down because i was a harmony corinne fan and i was intrigued i was like okay a role where it seems like he's going to actually brilliantly use Matthew McConaughey, who actually did great in his performance, but the movie was just so off from what he normally did, and part of the problem was he made it focus on a singular character, and he was too focused on making the movie funny. I mean, I, after watching it, I had a completely different idea in my head on how it should have worked. There was the point where they had him go into rehab. Right? Was it rehab? Uh, I, I That movie is very forgettable. He was in some sort of facility. Yeah. I think that should have primarily taken place there, and it should have been him interacting with the community of people in there, you know, and everything else could be told in flashbacks, because there's this one scene, and I don't mind spoiling this, but his wife ends up dying in an accident, and it does the similar thing he did previously in Spring Breakers, where you see just before and just after intercut in a really interesting way, and I think he could have just done something more along the lines of that for an entire movie where the story of this poet who's critically acclaimed, but he's kind of always going off the deep end because he's wild. Yeah, I, I don't know. It was just missing so much of the magic that he makes in his other movies that I was just like, why? Why Why did you bother making this? Yeah. It's just another strike against Matthew McConaughey because he either does really cool stuff or he does just like not so cool stuff or he does rom-coms, which, you know, that's a whole other. Don't usually work too well. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, we've discussed our disdain for the beach bump before, so I think we're all on on board with that. Um, now that I've had some time to think about it, one of my favorite at TIFF or any film festival, you have certain stars or filmmakers who just have like the go to projects where it's like when it's TIFF time, you usually check out like the Fassbender film or both Mara sisters films like, the, you know, the, the token people that always come to the Toronto International Film Festival. And if you don't know by now, you'll probably figure out very soon, like literally right now, uh, one of my favorite film people ever is Natalie Portman. And she usually when it comes to TIFF, it's like Russian roulette almost where are you going to get a black swan and a Jackie or are you going to get a planetarium? You know, it just is a big gamble. But I usually try to see her films whenever I can, because if it's good, you know it's something very different. Annihilation wasn't that active, but it's the same thing where it's like not your usual Hollywood fare. So, and like Jackie, for instance, was a fantastic payoff. Like I was, I was at the first screening in, in Toronto, I think. And it was like brilliant. It's one of my favorite films of the 2010s. But, uh... When I saw Xavier Dolan's The Death and Life of John F. Donovan, because, you know, she works with really interesting filmmakers. Sometimes, you know, she worked with Wong Kar Wai and My Blueberry Nights is like his worst film. Same thing here. It doesn't matter who she's working with. You know, sometimes they have a dud. You know, you'd think that'd be a match made in heaven, but it wasn't. It was just such a melodramatic, on the nose, felt like a high schooler made it. Like uh, the, the soundtrack had Bittersweet Symphony by the verve like literally right at the end of the film what a cliche well it's the most cliche thing on earth that's how it ends in slow motion it's like jesus stand by me while natalie's looking for her son jacob trombley in the rain adam's song by blink 182 the soundtrack was just terrible the dialogue was just terrible and those aren't bad songs but like cliched beyond belief with how they were used it's just unfortunate because i love stuff like mommy which is still similarly like kind of on the nose when born to die by lana del rey plays at the end it's like a little like wink wink nudge nudge it's a little silly but it's charming the death and life of jonathan donovan was just really bad i found it 
painfully annoying and the dialogue borderline pornographic. So that was that instance of that. But I'm still going to check out her films whenever they come to TIFF because, again, it's a gamble. They could be excellent or they could be The Death and Life of John F. Donovan. Wow. Rachel, what about you? Okay, so everybody knows I love Katherine Hepburn. And she has made some legendary movies and some not-so-legendary ones. And she's got a few bad ones you could pick. But the one I'm thinking of is The Iron Petticoat. I don't even know that one. <laughs> okay, 1957. It was a remake of Ninochka, which, first of all, Ninochka was perfect and should never have been redone. Amen. Well, Silk Stockings was okay, but never mind. It's it's a retread of Ninochka. It involves Catherine Hepburn staring at one of those 1950s, like, metal bras that they had. It's very weird. Like, it's just a sense of humor that does not suit her. She's paired with Bob Hope, who is... You can see how Bob Hope and Catherine Hepburn would clash pretty badly. The jokes don't land, the humor's stupid, it's stereotypes of, of both sides of the Cold War that, even for the 50s, are pretty broad. It's just, none of it lands. None of it lands, and it should never have been made, and I don't know what Hepburn was thinking unless she somehow really needed a paycheck. But it's Catherine Hepburn, which no. she would never need a no, paycheck. No, terrible Russian accent. Really? No, she should not have been in there. She butchered the accent? She plays Ninoshka. Essentially, like they call her something different, but I guess so. But she's one of the all-time greatest actresses. I, I, I've never heard of her not doing a good role. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, everybody's got their hiccups, I guess. I guess third question, it'll be mine. What is a film that was shot way more beautifully than you were expecting? Like the cinematography was like, in this film, it looks this good. You just didn't see it coming. You know, I think I'm going to go with, since you were talking about Natalie Portman, I'm going to go with the film Vox Lux. Oh, I think that's a very underrated film, but please do tell. Yeah, I just think that's an example of a film that does composition really well. The way the camera followed people, because, you know, it. I don't want to say it's supposed to play like a pseudo documentary, but it kind of has this feel. It's like you're in the action, but you're supposed to be observing it at the same time. Mm-hmm. You're peering into this life of someone who a victim of school shooting turned pop star. And then it flashes forward to her future where, you know, she's dealing with her life as a mother and a pop star. And I don't know. It's just, I, I found it very striking and something that was, it took the subject matter that it was and made it something more based on the way it was just put together. I don't know. It's really hard to explain. I just, I just found the camera work really interesting for this kind of movie. I mean, I didn't know what to expect anyway from this kind of movie. I just sort of saw it and was like, Oh, I'll watch it. It's Dally Portman. I'll be down with it. It's like you said, it, it's, you could have something great or you could have something bad, but she's still worth watching. Exactly. And I mean, what can you expect when the soundtrack is composed by Scott Walker and Sia, like two completely different worlds, right? Rest in peace, uh, Scott Walker. Uh, the example I was thinking of was Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, where it's like this this high school kind of raunchy, um, you know, dramedy, but from like a girl's perspective. So like, uh, um, a super bad for girls and it's like a fantastic film with Beanie Feldstein and, and, and Caitlin Deaver um, but the way that it's shot is just so gorgeous and there's like a lot of like long single takes or just really colorful moments that take this you know this high school film and elevate it to something that's um, aesthetically profound I thought it was you know I was expecting to have fun but I wasn't expecting to be like wowed by the visuals of this thing Rachel, what is your choice? Okay, I've come up with one. It's The Farewell. Oh, yeah, that's true. Lulu Wong. Yeah. 
Because when you go into a movie like that, you're thinking, okay, it's a family drama. It's going to be interesting and well-written, but it's not going to be a lot visually. That's not the first thing that comes into your mind. But really, it's quite beautifully set up. The way they pair the family members together in certain shots, the way they show the city in the various settings, like um, they visit a graveyard, they have a banquet in a banquet hall. And it's really quite lovely filming. There's a really great scene where they walk with their uncle down the street at night in this city that they're visiting. And it's quite beautifully designed. It stayed with me ever since it happened. Yeah, I love that film. I've been meaning to rewatch it. That was our fast round. And speaking of films, because that's what we do, it's time to depart with our weekly recommendations. So James, what is yours? Off the top of my head, I'm going to go with Bronson by Nicholas Winding Refn, just because Tom Hardy's one of the greatest actors ever, and this movie proves it. Also, it's very rare you see someone go full Kubrick, almost like he was resurrected to make this film. Like This was literally shot in almost the exact same manner of A Clockwork Orange. Like if you compared the film side by side, there are certain shots I was like, hold up, wait, did you like resurrect him from the dead and like have him comment on on set like, hey, you should do this and this. Also, the camera work is kind of menacing. Yes. Like it's it's just has this overtone that is very I don't want to say it's like almost ghoulish, especially when you're dealing with the subject matter of a guy who basically loved living in prison, which is a really weird quirk to have. Bronson is an underseen film, especially that it's been a while. I recommend it. And it's Tom Hardy's big breakthrough. Absolutely. Rachel, what is your selection? Hmm, I'm going to go with a quirky British movie from a few years ago. I saw it at TIFF. It was called Prevenge, and it's a horror comedy about a pregnant lady whose fetus is telling her to murder people. The fetus is evil, but that's the whole movie. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really funny in a really bad way. The actress Alice Lowe, who wrote, starred in, and directed the movie, is familiar from Black Mirror. She played the therapist in Bandersnatch. So it's full of this whip-smart humor, and she was actually pregnant when she made the movie. So you got to wonder, you know, who the kid who played the fetus is going to think of this when she grows up. But I went to the screening of this film, and if memory serves me correctly, she brought the baby with her. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So talk about a family event. Anyway, it's a tremendously funny and got a lot of good commentary. That's also the best pun ever. Prevenge. Prevent. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. I honestly can't think of one. I, I can, but I can't think of anything else. And it's not really one film. It's it's a couple. It's the Up series. I'm not going to lie. For the last oh, yeah. couple of weeks, all I could think of is, you know, poor Michael Apted, who just passed away, you know, early January. And just the, the profound effect that if you don't know what this is, the Up series started when they selected a bunch of kids in England. It's like this uh, very small district, I believe. And they're all seven years old. It was supposed to be like a one-off. The original director, Paul Almond, just wanted to see what these kids thought. But Michael Apted continued this thought. So every seven years, so when they were 14, when they were 21, when they were 28, etc., up until 63, which just got released two years ago now, um, we got to revisit these people and see where they were at. And it's just such a moving profound um interesting experiment and yeah i don't know where it's going to go from here um but rest in peace michael Apted. fabulous anyway that was the k-cut and thank you for listening now we are going into the l-cut 